what you want, when you want it, where you want it. This is The Mesh. Hey, this is Andrew Moose from the Street Circle Drive podcast here on The Mesh. Interested in promoting your business to an online audience? Your ad could be right here. Consider advertising on The Mesh Podcast Network. Head over to themesh.tv for details. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Forecast. I'm your host, Alan Burton, from the Alan Burton Golf Academy in Lake Hickory Country Club, Hickory, North Carolina. Our show is your connection to the who's who in the game of golf. Uh, We'll make you think, we'll make you laugh, and hope to grow your golf IQ. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in. We're on themesh.tv. So if you're looking for us, you can find us on any of your favorite podcast platforms, Apple iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher Radio, iHeartRadio, and Google Play, as well as many others. So um, I'm very excited to to be joined this morning by one of my good friends, uh, a a legend in our industry when it comes to teaching golf and, importantly, uh, putting in particular, Uh, my good friend David Orr. David has been coaching golfers for over 27 years. Uh, He spent 11 years of his career doing putting research and golf swing research, in particular putting. He's coached over 70 tour players, in putting, uh, the Flat Stick Academy originator and owner, and Golf Magazine Top 100 instructor from 2019, a legend in our industry. Welcome to our show, Mr. David Orr. David, how are you, buddy? Thanks, Alan. Good to be here. Yeah, you are you are a legend, and I know that's that's hard to carry that title around, but uh, you do so much for our industry, and you've you've kept us all out of the weeds when it comes to coaching putting. I I particularly owe a lot to you and what I teach every day and helping players get better. So uh, let's, let's help our listeners get the ball in the hole a little, little quicker and a little easier. All right. Thank you. I'm very flattered by your introduction. Thanks. Oh, that's my pleasure, man. So with, uh, with the game of golf, you know, I see a lot of people, you know, working on hitting that 300-yard tee ball and trying to get their scores down and stuff. And, and I don't think that's always the answer as a coach. I'm trying to drag people by their earlobes over to the putting green and force a putting lesson on them. Do you find that to be the case a lot of the times too? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's a lot more fun to see how far you can hit it and and uh, hit golf balls. And, and uh, you know, putting, putting is something that looks easy, uh, but yet it's very difficult and it frustrates a lot of golfers. So that's probably the number one reason why they don't practice putting is they go over their expectations of – of it being easy and, you know, then they get frustrated. And a lot of times they just don't know what to practice. And, you know, we talk about the basic skills of putting, green reading, speed, start line and aim. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I think, I think in a practice session, you should involve all of that. That's why I think uh, you teach aim point and I, and I outsource almost all my lessons to their local aim point instructor, because I think practicing, Break direction and break amount using Aimpoint Express is a great way to practice their greenery. Mm-hmm. I, I just don't know of any other way other than to spend, you know, five to ten hours a week putting like tour players do. You know, and right. uh, I think I think reading greens is the number one fundamental uh, as far or number one skill. Excuse me, not fundamental, but number one skill. And then obviously, you know, putting on different green speeds and practicing practicing starting the ball in line and, and, and knowing where you tend to aim. So I think golfers just, when they go over there, they kind of putts around a little bit and they make a few, miss a few, and then they wander off to the first tee or, or mm-hmm. back to the driving range or just go home. So yeah, I think you, putt, 
putting is uh, something that's that definitely needs to be practiced more. And I think it's difficult for the average player for sure to quantify which of those skills they're deficient in, and that makes their frustration even more the case because they, they miss a putt or they putt poorly on the golf course and they come off the golf course and they say, well, I don't know why, but I, just, I, made, I didn't make anything. I had a lot of three putts. I just don't know why I putt poorly. And their first thought is, well, maybe they need to change putters or get a new grip on their putter and all these other things. And I think for the even for the better player, sometimes it's difficult to say, well, you know, you missed that putt. Can you tell me what skill needs to improve in order for you to make more putts? In that situation, just that one putt you miss, what do you need to do better on that putt to make a more successful, you know, performance? Uh, it's difficult for them to quantify that. Well, that's why I teach all my players a post-putt routine. Did they misread it or mishit it? Mm-hmm. Did they let push it or they hit it too hard, too soft? So those would be three quick questions they could use as feedback after they hit a putt. And I literally train my players mentally that after they've hit a putt, they have a responsibility or job to do Absolutely. Yeah. Let's yeah. identify it immediately. Yeah, that's that's so important. And even in a full shot, you know, most players are quick to choose anger and aggravation as opposed to awareness and analytical skills to determine how they're going to improve. Right. Absolutely. Well, they got they got to get used to using feedback, and that's what the best players in the world do. You know, yeah. They show some emotion quickly, but then they quickly divert to, to some feedback and try to correct it. And it's difficult for them to organize ways to practice and, and go to the green and actually have some some uh, some fruit come from their labor, so to speak. Um, you know, you've organized your putting and your coaching approach into a very, um, I think, a very methodical way to look at people and, and see where they're deficient. And so we're talking about seven ways that you could improve a golfer. And there's, as you call it, the mental state. You know, oftentimes when a golfer comes to us for some help, they're not in a good mental state for sure. And that's a good place to start, would you think, you know, with a golfer? Yeah, so, I mean, once you understand that that all of golf and all of movement's an inside job, you know, it starts mm-hmm. inside the brain and and the mind. And, and and so I like to I like to hear the player's stories. I like to separate the fact from the fiction, so to speak. And like to hear their narrative, how they talk about their putting, because it's interesting, you know. I've been very fortunate, you know, to teach out on tour for 12 years now. And um, I've done practice rounds with some of the best players in the world, and I've worked with some of the best players in the world. And, you know, Brad Faxon's one of my good friends, and, and we've spent a lot of time together. And, you know, his attitude is his number one fundamental, mm-hmm. you know, mental, mental fundamental. And I, I you know, I know it's hard to have a good attitude when you're missing putts all the time, but maybe the reason why you're missing putts all the time is because your attitude and your perspective and how you look at it. So, sure. um, you know, he's got such a great attitude. And I asked him one day, I said, facts, how'd you become such a confident putter? And he kind of leaned toward me and he's a big tall guy, right? Yeah. He goes, I earned it. He goes, nobody has practiced more than me. Nobody loves putting more than me. Wow. And the attitude toward, toward putting is he just absolutely loves everything about it. And, and you know, he, Fax is getting into into coaching now, and he's like, "Man, this is hard." <laughs> I thought teaching putting putting would be simple. I said, <laughs> I, "I'll tell you a story, Fax." I said, "Foley and I were walking down the Sean Foley uh, and I were working walking down the PGA Championship in 2013, and Justin was playing with Torboard and Olison, and Foley said to me, he "Goes, you know, Dior." He goes, "If Rosie misses a fairway, it's no big deal." 
He goes, if Rosie misses a green, it's no big deal. Now, if Rosie misses a four-footer, that's a big deal, and that's your job, not mine. And, start- <laughs> and there's a lot of truth to that story because putting is something that looks like anybody should be able to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yet, why do golfers struggle? Well, the number one reason why golfers struggle is they haven't spent enough time on the greens practicing or putting on different putting greens. Like putting in the mountains is different than putting at the beach. Mm-hmm. Now the grass is different, you know, and, sure. and, uh, you know, so putting your time in, uh, so that you can experience different grains, different speeds and starting to be aware, like you said, awareness is key being aware of what you're doing. And, and that's one of the things that separates a tour player or my really good competitive golfers from the ones that are struggling is their level of awareness, right? You know, that very heightened awareness of what they're doing, their feel, uh, their attention, uh, so on and so forth. But putting is something that looks simple, simple, but yet I find it amazing the number of full swing instructors that, that just send people to me and they send them to you and to Jason and, and Rick, you know, for either aim point or, or some putting instruction because, yeah, you're dealing with less than a degree, you know, the face being less than a degree open or closed. So yeah. it's almost like, uh, you know, you're dealing with an MRI, so to speak, as opposed mm-hmm. to an X-ray. So yeah, it's, um, such a it's microscopic I, thing. I, I really yeah. love teaching putting, and 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 uh, I really like, you know, that's where I've had the most success. Is you know, I was a full swing instructor for a long time, and yeah, built beautiful golf swings, but people weren't winning tournaments. And then I started teaching putting, and I wasn't. I'm not teaching a method or a system to anybody, and and teaching the individual, and all of a sudden people are performing and going out and winning like the following week or the following two weeks. So yeah, cool. Tell me, tell me your thoughts about, and I know you don't teach a lot of beginners or maybe you don't teach any, are you're still director of instruction at Campbell university, correct? Uh, well, this, uh, I am, this is my last semester at Campbell. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, yep. After 15 great, wonderful years, uh, I'm stepping down and, and I'm going to still live here. Okay. Uh, obviously catch the basketball and football games and I've got a lot of friends in the, in the area. Yeah. But I'm going to be at Pine Needles uh, full-time and still traveling a lot, do a lot of speaking. As you know, I speak all around the world, so yeah, that, uh, that, that just got to free up my schedule a little bit. Well, I've often marveled at how you were able to maintain such a busy, you know, committed schedule with all that. So I can certainly respect the need to do that and, and move your career. I'm working three or four jobs at one time. So, it's yeah. impossible, yeah. So uh, it's pretty masterful. So, you know, in teaching a beginner, I teach an occasional beginner, and I certainly think it's fascinating to watch a beginner the first time when they've had no putting instruction try to maneuver their ball around the green. And the other day I took a little different approach, and I wanted to get your your, your thoughts on this. And this particular individual was a young female, 15-year-old female that had never played golf, and she said she'd played putt-putt before. So I thought, well, we're going to start on the putting green anyway. I like to start beginners there and just kind of see what they do. And uh, I went into my office where I have a bunch of training aids, and I, I took out my my Dave Pell's True Roller, which is kind of the perfect putter, if you will, from 20 years ago. And I said, what we're going to start with is this ramp, and we're going to roll some balls off this ramp and, and just watch what they do as they roll on the green. And uh, so I didn't have her hit any putts to start with. We, we rolled balls for about 10, 15 minutes, and just I had, had her describe to me what she thought the ball was doing and why it was doing that. And so as a result of that, it was tremendous to watch how when she went to putt, how she now had some better concept of what's going to happen and where to aim her putter. 
and how to swing the putter. Just how I presented that. Is that a, a is that different than other instructors to teach a beginner to start with a ramp and rolling balls on the ground? Or is that what do you think about that? I think that's wonderful that idea because what you taught her was the first assumption for beginner golfers is that the greens are flat. Mm-hmm. They just aim at toward the hole and hit it toward the hole. Sure. And then wonder why the ball is not going toward the hole. You know, right, so. Right. You did, a, you did a great job in introducing her to the first skill, which is green reading and the interaction of the ball and the environment. Right. It was interesting. Her, her, um, her comment to me, I said, the ball's not rolling straight off of this ramp. Why do you think that is? And she said, well, the, the, the ground is, uh, is, is the ground's tilted. I said, exactly. I said, you, you just understood the most important concept to to try and understand because you're going to put your ball across tilted ground at times it's going to be tilted to the right tilted to the left maybe not tilted side to side but tilted front to back you know up and down and she said yeah that makes sense I said so as a golfer what do you think the best way to deal with that is and she said well really I guess is to learn where to to start things and get get the ball going I said you've got it I said that's what good golfers are able to do is they can select a target direction and anticipate how much that ball is going to curve across the tilted ground. And she said, well, okay. So she made some very, very quick um, strides as a beginning golfer in that first lesson. So I just thought I would bounce that off you and see what you thought about it. Well, you taught her the principle of slope. So that's – and that's, you know, it's yeah. funny. Can be a beginner golfer, even sometimes you get up into a high-level junior or college players, they don't understand that concept of mm-hmm. slope. I think the next time I'll bring I'll bring the greens mower out. I'll tell the, the superintendent to let the green be a little long. We'll start with that, and then we'll roll some balls off the ramp, and then have him mow the green and do it again. Because yeah. I think, as you've said, slope and stamp change the game. So we'd introduce two concepts right there. Yeah, slope and stamp. I mean, that's what golfers <laughs> struggle with the most, and that's why it's so imperative to putt at different putting greens. Like um, we've got four different putting greens at Pine Needles, and. I think we had four here at Keith Hills as well. So, and they were all built differently, you know. And okay. and, and at Keith Hills, we had both Bent and and Bermuda. It was a sad day when they changed to all Bermuda, but yeah. you know, you can show the interaction of the ball and the environment, and and understanding slope and stem because that's what golfers struggle with. So let's just take an example. You got your foursome. You play at a Muni or whatever, and you guys get invited over to Country Club to play and a member guest or whatever, whatever it is, right? Four mm-hmm. ball or whatever, uh, foursomes or whatever. And all of a sudden the greens are, th- roll- instead of rolling at an eight, they're rolling at a 12. So there's a four foot difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but there's also a difference in the effective stem, which is going downhill versus uphill. And this is one of the things I show people on Bermuda grass, that grain effects stem, and more specifically when downhill, the stint might be rolling a 16, whereas uphill it might be rolling like a nine. Mm-hmm. So there's a, that difference of what, seven feet. I might be a little bit over exaggerating there, but there might be a difference of yeah. of the stint going downhill versus uphill. And that's what go- golfers struggle with. Yeah, They struggle I, with that, that, that speed change. Yep. I refer to them as the speed factors. You know, when you, when you look yeah. at a putt, how many golfers really even understand how to estimate distance they are from the hole. When they get on the green, they, they completely throw that concept out the window. And I've often asked a golfer when I'm giving them a putting lesson, I said, do you have a range finder? Oh, oh yeah. I said, how much you spend on your range finder? Oh, it was a nice one. I got the, you know, the $400 one. I said, so 
you wanted to spend $400 on a device to know an exact distance for your approach shot. But when you go on the green, you don't even know the distance you are from the hole. Is that, does that seem interesting to you? You know? Yeah. Right. right. So well, distance estimation, first- slope, and all these other factors, they're, they're, they're not even looking at the, the, the single speed factor of distance to start with. So you got to build them some fundamentals and recognize all of those speed factors together. Don't you? Yeah. So we're looking at, um, you know, the mental state. Now we're talking a little bit about you, you mentioned putting skills as one of your things. And I guess we're talking about the ability to start it online, control, control their speed and, and be a, a good green reader. Talk yeah, a little that, bit, a bit about how you think players manage their, their start lines. What are some things that they have they struggle with there? Down, that'd be a little bit further down the the template in managing direction. We'll talk about that. Yeah, players tend to have a pull bias or a push bias to their stroke. In other words, they aim left, push it right; aim right, pull it left. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, it would be wonderful if all players were neutral, where they aimed and returned the face square. So, that'd but, be too uh, easy on our jobs. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the hard part. But uh, so, yeah, you know let's just kind of start with the first two. So you got your mental state and you got your skills. I mean, I made it to the tour just teaching those two things, mm-hmm. you know, because everybody has their own pattern. So that leads into the the third one, which is measuring somebody's stroke fundamentals. So, you know, James lights, a good friend of mine. And one of his sayings is never guess what you can measure. Right. So I have all kinds of technology, uh, two Sampot labs and I've got uh, cap, uh, three captos. Um, I've got all kinds of technology to measure strokes and I use the Sam pot lab indoors on a flat surface to see what they would do in a controlled environment. Then I use Capto outdoors so I can see what they do in the environment. Mm-hmm. So I have an idea of that stroke pattern that they have measured indoors, but immediately go outdoors and see how they adapt and adjust that pattern to the environment. Right. And what they do. So the assumption is that my stroke stays the same. Right. Well, I've measured, I can't tell you how many thousands upon thousands of strokes. Granted, your stroke doesn't change, like, say, from severely out to end, it's severely end, end out. But there might be some changes that you make in, in the rotation of the face or or, mm-hmm. or changes in the loft or the lie of the club or maybe even a little bit in, in the way, the timing. That's one of the things that I found out in timing. This is a nice thing. I don't know if you've done this or not, but you should time uh, the backstroke and time to impact and the ratio of that on a three footer versus a 10 footer, 30 footer and 60 footer mm-hmm. There's a company out there trying to sell a bill of goods saying that your timing should always be the same. I've never seen anybody's timing the same on a three footer as a 60 footer. No. It, and it might be an, an intention in a philosophical blueprint world that you might want to stay in the same tempo, but it's not how it works. Is it? <laughs> That's not reality. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. Certainly, I see a lot of players, you know, out on the green, and they'll they'll do different things for a left to righter or right to lefter, you know. And so it's not just the indoors to out that you see the transition; it's it's in every different type of putt that they encounter. Certain stroke patterns match certain angles. Mm -hmm. So uh, Nick Feldo always says it had to do with dexterity, whether you're right hand or left hand. And I I didn't find that to be true. Yeah. What I found to be true was was a player's face rotation. So let's take Dean Wilson, for example, who played on the PGA Tour for a long time. Um, Andy Plummer said, hey, take Dean over there to, to the putting green. Let's work on his right to less. 
he's always missing them left. Well, Dean's the type of player that would work the face rotation shut in the backswing and try to open it back up. Mm-hmm. And when he didn't open it back up, he'd miss it left. Mm-hmm. And But he was the king of left-to-righters because he could pull it and start it online. So I see more breaking putts has less to do with dexterity and more to do with face rotation. Mm-hmm. And more specifically, face rotation relative to the path as well. Sure. So, um, but the face is king when it comes to to, to just starting the ball in line. Right. So you see a lot of players that have a slightly open face. They love right to lefter, and they miss their left to right as well. Yeah. You know, and guys that are fairly neutral are pretty good on both sides of the uh, of the zero line. So mm-hmm. uh, that's kind of what I see. That's kind of how I use Capto is to watch that pattern sure. and how how apps and adjust. So are you uh, more? Are you more apt to give a, a highly skilled uh, golfer um, a recommendation to change what they're doing or an, an ability to manage what they're doing? I don't know if that question makes sense. And just That's are you trying question. to bring that player's awareness to what they're doing and let them manage it that way? That's a great question. So the only time I change technique or stroke pattern is when it doesn't allow them to be skillful. Mm-hmm. It's a great okay, point. So yeah. something in the pattern that doesn't allow them to do something. That's a great way to put it. And then as far as if, say, say they're very skillful and they've got a good, a decent pattern um, and it's very consistent, then I'll teach them how to manage that pattern. Mm-hmm. So like for instance, on a left to right putt, we might, uh, for a person that works the face open close, we might move the ball position hair forward on a left to right putt. Sure. Or keep it in the same spot or slightly back for a right to left putt or, we might change the shaft if we're going. If we're going uphill, the worst thing to do is have forward lean or de-lofted because you'll launch it into the slope. So maybe we lean the shaft back with the slope, matching the slope, hitting uphill, mm-hmm. matching the slope, hitting downhill, and then, boy, that 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 right there goes. People go, man, that's like playing golf in the fairway. I'm like, exactly. Yeah, You're, it's, it's just so, microscopic, so, but yeah, it's the same thing. Maybe one of the reasons why uh, that you're struggling on the putting green is you're trying to force a perfect setup in the, in a tilted environment. That's very good. That's your genius right there, David. And I hope people pick up on that and understand that you see things in a very, very uh, microscopic way. And that's why you're good. That's why your eye and your skill and your understanding of putting is so, uh, so effective when players come see you. Well, I think it's important for the player to understand that, Hey, I have a pattern, Mm -hmm. but I have to adjust it to the environment. And if I don't, that might be the reason why. So let's just take the good player who has an uphill left to right. That's a great litmus test. So if we got our listeners out there, go mm-hmm. find you a ten foot uphill left to right or you know, and hit that putt and see how many times you finish low right. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that might just because the shaft is leaning in space, vertical, but into the slope, it's delofted and that ball's squirting off the slope to the right. Mm-hmm. You know, take that shaft and just lean it back just a touch and feel like the circle is left of the hole. And all of a sudden, boom, they're making left to rights on the high side. Mm -hmm. So it's just learning to make these subtle adaptations. And what's interesting is I look back when I was a teenager, I never had the same exact setup for any shot in golf. Right. Other than off the tee box. Mm -hmm. And even there it changed a little bit if I was you know, the tee box was tilted or I was drawing the ball or fading the ball. So I think this concept of trying to get into one perfect forced setup is it's a good concept to learn where home base is. Right. 
but then you got to know, I got to, okay, make just a little adjustment here because I'm going uphill or downhill or, or whatever. But that's, I think that's playing golf. You know what I mean? Well, it's, it, yeah, it is. It's adapting. I've always said to my players, I said, think about, you know, the wild animal in the jungle. If, if that wild animals live their entire life in a cage and you let them out of that cage and put them in that wild jungle, they're probably not going to be able to feed themselves and stay alive very long. But I said, that animal that grew up in the jungle can survive. I said, that's kind of what we need to be as golfers, isn't it? Survive in, in that wild environment and, and come away winning um, just by being able to, uh, to understand the environment you're in and, and adapt. So now we've got mental state, we've got putting skills, and we've got stroke fundamentals, right? Right. So now the thing is, is that putter helping or hurting? Is the putter too long? Is it too short? Is it uh, not enough loft? Too much loft? Um, I actually measured a kid's loft. He bent the hosel, and he had as much loft on his putter as he did his driver because he obviously <laughs> leaned the putter against the ball. Or the Slammed bag. it over something and bent it, yeah. yeah. And then, uh, you know, I wonder why he had speed problems. And then, uh, <laughs> you know, you get into head shapes and hosels and offset and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, putter fitting, I think, is uh, – it's a, it's a new baby, so to speak. Um, I started with Henry Griffiths and then Adele Golf, and now I'm doing True Spec. Um, and the reason why I'm doing True Spec is brand agnostic. I've got 53 different heads mm-hmm. uh, that I can change shafts and lengths and grips. And we've got 14 different grips now. Wow. I've been doing a lot of a lot of testing. I wouldn't call it research. I'd call it just little pilot studies, just testing different grip shapes. Mm-hmm. For the way people's hands are different on the club, how they hold their thumb or their forefinger or where they hold it in their hand. Sure. So I've been doing a lot of testing with that, and that's been pretty cool. Sure. Um, but yeah, is that the basic thing about putter? Is your putter helping you or hurting you? You know, and that's kind of how that's how simple I look at it. And there's a lot of people that cut, show up with a granddad's putter that was 36 inches long and a ping that had <laughs> six degrees loft on it, and it was 72 degrees upright and yeah. yeah, they need. And then I then I put them in something, and then I show them side by side the putters at a dress, and they're like, "Oh my gosh, it's like eight inches different." Right. Like, yeah, exactly. Right. Eight inches, not just along the shaft, but lie wise. You know what I mean? Yeah. The height of yeah. pins. So. Well, they're all uh, they're all different. I mean, you can take you know ten old ping answer putters from the seventies and look at them and see all the variations in those those same models. Cool. You know, it's kind you of know, crazy. It's funny ping invited me out. Ping invited me out because I got good friends out there. Paul Wood, Eric Henriksen, Marty Jensen, they're all good friends of mine. And they yep. invited me a couple, a couple springs ago. And, you know, Carson Solheim really started putter fitting with right. the different, different hosels. And he's the real pioneer of putter fitting. Well, club fitting in general, I think, too, with this yeah, you know, right, totally system, you know, with the irons. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. So I think. Um, the only problem I have with putter fitting would be if you're using it to try to sell a certain brand. Right. You know, as opposed to fitting people. That's why I love TrueSpec. I mean, I might fit you with a TaylorMade or a Peretti or a Evenroll or a Bettinardi, and it's the same. They're all the same head shapes. And I'm mm-hmm. just figuring out which one feels right to you and matches the flow of your stroke. Sure, you're giving the player a lot more, you know, you know, uh, selection yeah, when you have that. So as opposed to just going, okay, I've got this one brand, I'm fitting you, and do you want to buy it? <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. I, I hated. I always hated the selling part. 
mm-hmm. of putter fitting. Right. I really, I just, I never, I always felt like, oh, geez, if I screw, if I screw this fit up, I mean, this guy just spent $600 on a putter. Mm-hmm. You know? And so I just, I didn't like the selling part, but I do think, you know, at least get a better tool in your hand. You know what I mean? Sure. sure. Might not be a perfect one. I mean, how, I know what I'm doing pretty much somewhat, I should say. And it took me four tries to get the putter exactly where I wanted it, mm-hmm. you know? And so I've got, you can see the, the first prototype and the second one I had made. Byron Morgan did a beautiful job on making me two prototypes. And then I found out exactly what I needed. And then I found, you know, a, a manufacturer that actually had that in their lineup, you know? Yeah. So it's, uh, finding the right, you know, finding whether you're a blade or a mallet or a plumber's neck or a flow neck or a single bend or whatever. And yeah. just finding out what, what you need or what, what at least will help you a little bit better. So, well, it's, yes, it's so there's the four, there's four of those. And now we're getting into that question you asked earlier. Um, you know, generating speed. Does this player do it with the shoulders? They put with their arms, put with their wrists, they put with their trail arm. And what's funny is most people always come to me and say, yeah, I need to put my shoulders. I said, you have no chance. You're not even set up to put with your shoulders. <laughs> um, one of the things that you need to be able to do to put with your shoulders, you need to be able to move your upper body without moving your lower body. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to have your grip and your face alignment pretty neutral. Yep. You know, if you move the face alignment and grip pretty neutral, you're going to have to do some something with the arms and wrists to get the face square. So right. the vast majority of golfers I've tested in 3D over the last six years – uh, now 3D with a body, not just not just the club. Um, vast majority of golfers putt with their trail arm on the downswing, mm-hmm. so they might move it back with their shoulders and down with their right arm. So Tiger Woods would be an example of something that put someone that putts with a trail arm. Henrik Stenson putts with his trail arm. Uh, Branch Snedeker putts with his wrist and his trail forearm. Mm-hmm. You know, so there's a lot of golfers that deliver the golf club with the trail arm. And uh, it's, I've yet to see a perfectly, a perfectly neutral shoulder stroke where there's no arm motion, no wrist motion. I haven't seen it yet. Mm-hmm. Sure. So, it can be, so that goes into what I call your prime mover. What's your prime mover? Do you primarily move the, I call it the, the lower Y, which is the forearms and the shaft. Mm-hmm. You move it with the upper Y, which is your upper arms. Mm-hmm. You move it with your shoulders. Do you move it with your right arm? What's the prime mover? here what's generating the most speed to this to this golf club mm-hmm. so that's my fun that's actually my favorite topic to talk about yeah especially so many. speaking overseas to to different golf professionals and and i love to talk about how players generate force and speed it's one of the most important skills isn't it to manage their their delivery speeds um, not just from putter to ball but when the ball arrives to the hole they have the proper speed so that's so many different ways to do that. You feel like there's a, a preference. I mean, I know sometimes instructors have a preference when they get the, instructors the student. Have a preference, but players, yeah. The players should ultimately decide what they're most coordinated at doing. And I sure. hear so many players. I had a player the other day said, I'm trying to take my right hand out of it. And I said, why? Because, mm-hmm. well, aren't you supposed to? I said, well, if you took Tiger Woods' right hand out of it, he wouldn't make anything. Yeah. You know, yeah. so – I said, why don't we train your right hand and right arm to do what it needs to do to make more putts? Yeah. And I did that, and he was like, man, I can't believe I'm allowed to putt with my right my trail side. I'm like, 
see the vast majority of golfers push the putter through impact. Sure. Or they throw it with the wrist and arm. I said, I said, where they get in trouble is when they start twisting trail form. And that's where we saw, you know, Ernie back on the Masters. Right. You know, it's twisting the arm the opposite direction. You can start getting yips if you get too twitchy. Or, you know, start twisting the club. We call it handling. Handling a car. Right. Steering. Yep, steering. You know, so, sure. So there's nothing wrong with putting on the trail arm as long as it's doing the right thing. Sure. So yeah, to manage that face, you don't want to put a whole lot of rotation on that grip. I and mean, you're not going to manage the face rotation properly and square the face at impact. So getting back to that question, the, the, the answer to the question is coordination. Mm-hmm. Rather than teacher preference. Coordinating those things. Yeah, absolutely. And do you find that if a golfer comes to you and they're typically used to playing golf on a – uh, muni course where the where the stamps are around eight that they they recruit their their velocity a little differently in a, in a way that no, absolutely. Uh, yeah it, i i mean i grew up on slow green so i have a little bit of lag or load mm-hmm. to the shaft right backs in the same thing and utley it's funny players that putt with the lowercase y the forearms and the hands they have a little more load to the golf club right you no know, and a little more head feel you know the inertia of the club is a little more magnified. And then what's interesting is players that put on fast greens, um, they might, the club's a little more wooden. Like there's no load to it. There's a lot of training aids like that orange whip or whatever, training you not to have a load in the club. Sure. You know, and in order, if you don't have anything going on downstairs, you better start recruiting the upstairs. And, and that's where I think a lot of yips come from. Is players trying not to do something with their forearms and wrists. Gotcha. And they're used to generating speed from there, and then they try to recruit it from somewhere else, and that's where they get the, the little twitches. Mm-hmm. You know, but they're, I mean, they're, I would say Hunter Mahan um, would probably be the best upper body torso driven stroke I've seen. Sure. Um, um, there's some players that are ro- shoulder rockers, like Dean Wilson was a shoulder rocker. Mm-hmm. You know, working the shoulders more vertically up and down, they're more bent over. Michelle Wee. You know, bent over a lot, really rocking the mm-hmm. shoulders and more torso turning rather than tilting uh, at that being way bent over. That's an interesting thing that I've learned from 3D. The more upright the player is or even extended the spine, mm-hmm. the more tilt side to side they have. Mm-hmm. And then the more bent over they are, the more turn they have. So it's like taking an airplane and changing its pitch, the mm-hmm. posture. Mm-hmm. And the requirements to keep that airplane in, in space the same are a little bit different. Isn't sure. that cool? Yeah. So absolutely. You'll, you'll see a player that's bent over a lot actually use not 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 bent over crouched, but bent over right with with so their spine they'll very have straight rotation than you expect. Yeah. In that body, they're just rolling along that long axis like this. Yeah. And then I noticed that with a lot of short players who have very little bend or bend and then they got some extension in their upper back they start tilting and side to side a lot so mm-hmm. that was one of the cool things i learned and uh that helps me uh, understand how the shoulders should move when the person's upright mm-hmm. over a lot so that was pretty cool so yeah but uh yeah we, so how a player generates speed or coordinates the motion now gives birth to the managing direction mm-hmm how you generate speed has a huge impact on the direction that should be going. And sure. then whether you're, Oh, we can make it this simple. 
I told the joke in Germany that didn't go over too well a couple of years ago at the German uh, putt mm-hmm. conference. It was in Frankfurt, Germany, and I was talking about Grandpa's gun. So yeah. I, I started talking about managing direction, and I said, okay, well, if Grandpa's gun shoots left, where are you going to start aiming it? And they looked at me like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I said, well, you would aim it to the right if Grandpa's gun shoots to the left. I said, if, if grandpa's gun shoots to the right, you'd start aiming to the left. And they're just still looking at me like they don't understand my English. And uh, so anyway, but to our listeners out there, basically you start aiming your stroke. You see players that tend to have face open, they start to aim and left a little bit to compensate for that push. Mm-hmm. Or players that tend to pull, like Tiger aims two and a half degrees to the right on a sand pot lab. Not because he can't aim, it's just because he has a tendency to hit poles and Mm -hmm. has a closing of the club face. So he starts aiming the stroke to the right, which makes sense. So things go together. So getting back to the the putt conference, so I ended the conference. I walked to my my buddy Rolf Kinkle and and Rolf's an aim pointer. And and I said, boy, that that joke about Grandpa's gun didn't go over too well. He goes, yeah, first of all, you forgot about World War II. Hey, you you guys (laughs) killed all our grandpas. And number two, since World War II, we've not allowed them to have firearms in our homes. <laughs> so I was like, "Oh man, I blew it! I blew it with that one." So, yeah, but uh, yeah, Talk about so politically correct, right? <laughs> yeah, so I mean, wouldn't it be wonderful if we were all neutral? And I think so many full swing instructors who are trying to teach putting, they fix their players' aim, but they don't fix the bias, right? Yeah. So that was one of the things when I used to fit Adele putters, and I love David Adele; he makes beautiful products. And he's a genius because I was fixing people's aims, but I was giving them putters that fix their aim, but not helping them close the club face or, mm-hmm. or square the face. Sure. So now with my putter fitting, I'm kind of an electric eclectic approach of a little bit of aim that I learned from Adele. And then obviously some stroke stuff that I've learned from different, different people, Bruce Rarick, um, uh, Tim Briand, a true spot spec. Um, and then my own, my own stuff is just saying, okay, can I reduce, the difference between address and impact with either aim, hopefully, mm-hmm. and or reducing that face change. So sure. we're bringing that that pattern to a tighter pattern. That's right. One of the things that Phil Kenyon and I have talked about a lot is how can we reduce the face change between address and impact? And that's mm-hmm. now the ball starting to come off where I'm looking. Right. See, when I left and push it right, it looks like push, mm-hmm. even if I'm pushing it online. Yep. I aim right and pull it back on the line, but it still looks like a pull. But if I can reduce the face change, um, then the player start, and then you're starting to hit it where you're looking. And then one of the tests that I borrowed from Bruce Rarick is that little ruler test to stand and position your head and your eyes to where the line looks at the hole. Mm-hmm. So start combining those three things of per- visual perception of how you see the line to the hole, finding a putter that you can somewhat aim and then getting one where you square. So you've got the triumvirate, I call it of, of your vision, um, your putter, and then your strokes. So you're getting those three things to match up. And I think this is why people change putters all the time. Mm-hmm. They're trying to find a putter. They're trying to find a gun that shoots where they're looking. Right. You know, and then they try this putter with offset. And, oops, that goes left to where I'm looking. And they try this Seymour putter, and oh, that goes right to where I'm looking. Let me try that Odyssey 7. Oh, man, that goes right where I'm looking. Sure. sure. You know, and then they're like, okay, I found it. So now i got to get put a grip on it. <laughs> you, know, I, you know, I hate to tell the listeners, but can I say this real, real quick? Yeah. 
big grips have been out for quite a long time. The fat yeah. is over. Yeah. yeah. I mean, even on the tour, guys are going back. Even super strokers so smart that they've made a pistol grip and they've made a lot more 1.0s and, mm-hmm. and they make a very nice grip and Lampkin makes a nice grip and Golf Pride, of course, down my neck of the woods. But the, the big grips are out. Um, and I'm going to tell you why they're out. Number one, they didn't do what they said they'd do, which is reduce, reduce the wrist action. Mm-hmm. Didn't do that. Right. And number two, it's harder to square the club face up if the gr- grip is big. Right. So a smaller grip's easier to square the face up than it is a bigger grip for mm-hmm. a lot of folks. Sure. But now, if there's a person that tends to pull a putt, you know, and, and we want to slow that rotation down, we want to put them in a bigger grip. Yeah. But I've actually done some research for three major OEMs. Well, one major OEM versus two other major OEMs on, Hey, what are these big grips doing? And they did not do what that major company said that it was going to do. So Mm -hmm. get grips that fit. Right. And they get the shapes that fit. One of the great young companies, small companies out there called Garson. Mm -hmm. They are making wonderful shapes. Mm -hmm. I would say it's not just the size of the grip, Alan, it's the shape of the grip. Sure. That's key. Yeah. It always has been. You know, it's funny. You, you talk about putter technology. And just a funny story comes to mind. I was in the golf shop at Catawba Country Club many years ago, and a member comes in with a 1920-some-odd heel-shafted blade putter and had the old original leather wrap grip on there. And the shape, I thought, was was wonderful, but I didn't think the guy actually putted with his putter. He said, hey, hey, Progan, you put me a new grip on this thing. And I said, Wow, that's nice. Why would you want to change that? You actually putt with this? Yeah, I putt with Another member comes in and grabs this putter out of his hand very, uh, you know, abrasively and looks at it. He goes, yeah, they don't make them like that anymore for a reason. <laughs> I thought that was hilarious, you know, talking about his old putter. Yeah, putters have evolved so much and grips and all this technology. And, you know, it gives a, it gives a player sometimes too many options, you know, and then they're confused. They don't know how to get the right thing for themselves. And that's why putter fitting is so important. Yeah. You know, and I do, like I said, part of my putter fit is fitting the grip. You know, so being able to throw a few different grip sizes in there and shapes in there and give them some feedback, let them feel it. And they go, oh, man, I can feel subtle difference. Absolutely. Sure. How much do you want players to know about their method of generating their speeds? Do you, do you go down the rabbit hole with every player? You want them to know, hey, look, this is what you're doing with your stroke length. This is what you're doing with your acceleration. This is what you're doing to create proper speed. Um, you know, when you're putting uphill, you're putting downhill, you're putting 20 feet, you're putting five feet. Uh, give us some drills that you want your players doing to stay, uh, you know, stay in tune with their, their speed generation. What do you want them to do? on a day-to-day basis Uh, varies from player to player obviously and what level they are right but you know the biggest thing is i don't i'm not a big drill guy um i teach people how to use the stick Mm -hmm. and i teach them how they use the stick and how to correct their own stroke that's the that's probably been the biggest reason for my success is that i've had such good players and those good players are smart players and they they're good students and they know how to fix their stroke i'll give you a, a quick story so I had a girl play at Augusta University. She just graduated. She came to me three years ago. She was left hand low and was swiping across at about six or seven degrees to the worst technique I'd ever seen and the worst attitude. Hmm. And I completely did a rebuild. We went back to conventional grip, uh, rebuilt the stroke pattern, changed her mindset, hooked her up with my mental coach on the PGA Tour, Paul Doolin. 
and started doing a team approach. And she went from averaging 76, I think her freshman year or sophomore year to a school record 71.3. Wow. By the time she graduated and on my technology, she had the best stroke of anybody that I've ever worked with. Now, did you hear what I just said? Oh yeah. The best stroke of anybody I've ever worked with. I've worked with Brad Fax and Justin Rose, yeah. Paul Casey, yeah. Eduardo Molinari, Trevor Immelman. I mean, her stroke mechanics were so sound, but more important, her work ethic, she would send me her 10 hour a week practice plan. Yeah. So she was practicing just as much as Jordan Spieth, you know, and, and so she really earned it. And, um, you know, now it's just a, a simple send me a video here, or just give me a text. Hey, what do you think about this thought? So I actually teach my players to teach themselves. Right. That's key. So very, very fortunate with that. Yeah. Because, you're, you're, you know, as a coach, you're not going to be able to stand out on every putting green and help guide that player through a round of golf if you can't help them help themselves and you're really – you're not taking them up to the next level as a player. It's, it's- well, one of the things that I do different, Alan, that from most coaches – is I make my players fill up, make up their own, create their own practice plan, and they already email it to me. Mm-hmm. In prize of a warm up, their little stroke station to work on their mechanics and mm-hmm. their setup, and then what short putt drills they're going to do, what medium length putt drills they're going to do, what long lag putt drills they're going to do, and any competitive golf or practice that they're going to have, and they email it to me. And they look at me and they go, well, aren't, aren't you going to make, make it for me? I look at them. I go, if I make it for you, you won't do it. Right. If I That's make true. you a practice plan, you won't do it. Right. But if you make your own and you can adjust it to whatever you feel like changing it to, you're going to be much more accountable to yourself than you are. Sure. Accountable and it empowers them to take ownership You know, of something that's very important. They must take ownership. I totally agree with that. I think there's only so much the coach should do. Um, but you definitely have to help them help themselves. And that's, that's our goal. But so I, I look at my coaching as I'm not, I mean, yes, I'm their coach, but I'm more their guide. I'm just guiding them, pointing sure. them in the right direction and saying, here, here's what you need to look, look looking out for. Here's what you need to correct. Sure. Uh, way more success doing that than sitting there and trying to monitor their practice in every putt they hit. It's almost detrimental because I used to work with Justin Rose for five years. And I did his putting, his chipping, pitching, and wedge play. And the big joke was when we got to an eight iron, it was Sean Foley's job. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I used to monitor every putty hit, and then he'd ask me feedback for every putty hit. And, you know, and I'd say, well, that one was open, and oh, that one was closed. And he goes, well, no, no kidding. You know, and it got to be where it wasn't, it wasn't fruitful sure. for me to, to be monitoring every stroke that he made or sure. measuring every stroke that they made. Mm-hmm. That's you talk about rabbit hole, you know, now you've got all this technology where you can measure strokes, but if you get measuring every stroke and analyzing every stroke, you can get caught up in the minutia without looking at the overall pattern. You know, right. and I use technology now more to study a pattern rather than worrying about getting the numbers perfect. Exactly. Yeah. I remember you shared that with me at dinner at a, at a trade show or something where you were talking about getting the mechanics of a player's stroke as good as you'd ever seen it on Sam, and they were way down the list on strokes gained putting because it doesn't really equate to success, and that's not how it works. So, Best stroke on technology, 209th. Right. 209th <laughs> on strokes gained putting, yeah. yeah. We were yeah. there. Yeah, it's different. Yeah. Yep. So, at, the, at, the, uh, 
at the end of the day, we're, we're helping players understand these three physical occurrences, you know, the putter to ball, the ball to the ground, and then the ball to the hole, and hopes to keep from having that fourth physical occurrence, which is the putter gets slammed into the ground, <laughs> you know? Yeah, and then just real quickly to sum it up, so the seventh fundamental is the, sh- the targeting preferences. That, you know, I have putt view there, yep. you know, whether it looks at the entry point or the curve line or the aim point or the straight aim line all that putt geometry and how they visualize it in their head and then teaching them how to connect the targeting preferences to the stroke pattern. Mm-hmm. I just went over this with Suzanne Pedersen. Um, I, I work with Suzanne and Anna Norquist and Shine Woods on the LPGA tour. And uh, I was just down with Suzanne Florida before she played Nadal this week and her putting stroke looked amazing. It used to be gnarly like a rattlesnake. And, uh, you know, she understands she understands how to connect you know, the curve line and the aim line to the stroke. Sure. You know, connecting the circle to the line. That's the key. How do you connect the circle to the line? Right. And uh, so she, she gets it. And if you get a chance to watch her this weekend, you know, she hasn't played golf in what, a year and a half. Okay. Uh, Been away for me, a little while. Yeah. Yeah. Well, she's a mom now and, and, What's amazing to me, she goes, putting is my best part of my game right now. It needs yeah. to be the worst part of my game. Well, that's good to hear from, from your standpoint, I'm sure. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, so uh, she carried her partner yesterday, so <laughs> but she had a lot of fun. That's good. Well, David, you continue to do so much for golfers on, on, the, you know, on the short grass and you know, for coaches, and, and you travel all over the world. As you mentioned, you speak, you present it. I've, I've been – fortunate enough to see your presentations and it's just continues to inspire us all to to help golfers in the right way and uh, i want to encourage our listeners to go to your flat stick academy i know you have a couple of options for them there online at flatstickacademy.com and you can get some some help for your own putting some organization uh so that you can improve if if they can't afford to come see you or you can't work it out to get in with you um you know one-on-one they can get that information to help them when they go out and practice. And that's, that's good. Tell us a little bit about that and what that entails. Well, like I tell the consumers buy the monthly, so that it's only nine ninety nine, So you can cancel after a month. If you want to cancel yeah. after a couple of months, you know, I put a, I try to put a video every seven to 10 days, new one. And it comes in your email. Um, the annual fee is more for coaches. That's for people that want to go through the entire website, over 200 videos, over, uh, 60 articles, you know, so the annual subscription, I, I would avoid if you were a consumer, just yeah. do the free and then, you know, get what you need and then get out or rejoin again. But guys like you would probably love the, the annual subscription. And, and like I said, there's, and you know, that's three years of content of putting a video every week. Yeah. It's a lot of work to get that out there and get yeah, quality videos done. It's, oh. it's raw too. It's all raw footage. It's just, I like my videos kind of, you remember Survivor Man? You know, I never was, saw that, no. <laughs> well, he'd go out there with, in the, you know, pull a few overnighters out there, you know, and he'd have his camera with him. And, oh, well, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Uh, I kind of like to do that with my putting instruction, like I'll videotape a lesson and just raw footage. It's not, it's yeah. not professionally done. I've had people say, man, these aren't very professional. I said, well, they're not supposed to be. No. Now no. the information is what's professional. It doesn't have to be completely produced and look like yeah. a movie, you know. 
Yeah, well, that's the problem with some videos that you buy is they, they are produced. They're very expensive to produce. Sure. And the content's awful. Exactly. Right? Exactly. You get this raw stuff where the camera's moving and the audio's terrible and you're sitting there trying to listen to it. It's just awesome information. So, um, you know, my intent was just to share. And, and, and what you said was so important is I can't help everyone. Right. I'm not, I'm not for everyone. But that's why I speak all around the world. I mean, just in this past year, um, my last gig was the PGA of Alberta in Canada. And then before that, the Danish PGA in Denmark. And then before that, the French PGA in Normandy, France. And before that, uh, I spoke at the uh, in Berlin. Um, I did a flat stick certification in Berlin. And then before that, the French Golf Federation and the PGA of Manitoba, uh, the Philadelphia Golf Sec, uh, PGA. Um, I mean, I'm co- you know, I would say for the last five years, I pretty much, if you see me on Facebook, I've pretty much been my honey has been in an airplane seat either every week or every other two weeks. Yeah. And here slowed down just a little bit. Cause I've had some personal stuff to go through this spring, uh, coming out really, really good, really healthy. And, and, uh, I'm going to France, uh, to speak, um, in October and then Italy in the winter. So awesome. yeah, all over the place. It's been great. Well, well, I'm getting to travel here coming up uh, pretty soon. I'm going in August. I uh, leave on the 10th to go over to Ireland myself and play a little golf. I've never been over there. So tell me what I'm going to encounter over there on the putting greens. Well, I haven't been to Ireland, but I've been to two British Opens. I've been to the British Open at Mirrorfield. I've been to the British Open at, uh, at St. Andrews, obviously with players, Justin Rose, Hunter Mahan. Mm-hmm. You deal with fescue, fescue and you're going to deal with wet weather. Yeah. Uh, the greens are not going to be super fast. Right. Uh, I, th- I was watching it this morning. The greens look so slow. Yeah, probably you know? a nine, maybe. It, it and, has to be because of the elements, the environment, yeah. the wind. You know, uh, Mark Sweeney probably knows the, the math on this, but you know, once you get over ten miles an hour wind, your ball starts moving on the button green. That's right. Do you know what the, that stamp is? is it like a twelve or what? What's that? What's the stamp where the ball starts moving on the green because of the wind? Oh, it's definitely going to move at a 12, I, w- I would think, a lot. Yeah, I, I played at Hazeltine one time. We had some 30-mile-an-hour gusts, and a buddy of mine's ball actually blew off the green after he marked it and placed it back onto the green, and ball blew off the green just from wind. It was on a pretty level surface, too, so, yeah, it can move a ball. Yeah, and this is one of the reasons why I think the Europeans do so well in major championships is they've played in bad conditions and big tournaments and big fields they come over to our flush conditions and when the tournament gets tough they're still pretty tough or the greens get tough they're tough or if the wind picks up they're tough you know what i mean so um who's your pick this week for the british well you have you hope for molinari i don't think he's playing great right now i think he got got off to a little bit of a shaky start Uh, i think mcelroy's struggling a little bit early too but um um, you know, I, I kind of pull for Molinari, you know, yeah. I pull for him. Um, a great guy. I worked Fleet with, Wood, I, I like I, Fleetwood. I think he's a great player. Probably could play well over there. Yeah. Um, I was very fortunate. I worked with Eduardo Molinari, Francesco's brother. And obviously you get to, you know, know him. Both. Phil Kenyon works with Francesco and Tommy and yep. Now, 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 Justin, and, and that, that's my pick. Justin's always my pick, always will be my pick. Sure. Uh, we're still good friends. We actually still FaceTime. And, awesome. 
because you know I did a lot more than just putting. You know. Oh yeah. Much play and. Well, and that's that's what's so special about you, David. Your knowledge of putting and and the fact that you um, you're a good you're a good guy, and people really enjoy being around you. I always consider you a good friend. I don't get to see you very often, but when I do, I enjoy my time with you, and I've certainly enjoyed it today. So I want to wrap up and and tell you how we're looking forward to seeing your career continue to skyrocket and do great things. And anytime I get to share time with you, buddy, is is good time for me. And want to thank our listeners and uh, hopefully they'll seek you out through your uh, flat stick academy and and gain more knowledge about this rolling the ball on the ground and getting it in this little four and a quarter inch hole you know it's uh it's a fascinating thing for me and i certainly enjoy teaching it i've got a young player coming out this afternoon for a couple hours of putting instruction the kid just qualified for u.s amateur and shot 69 71 and says coach i need to work on some putting so it, it better never stops for any of them right Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much, Alan, for having me on your show. Hey, it's always a pleasure, and uh, we look forward to seeing you again down the road, buddy. Safe travels right. out there. Take care. See you, buddy. All right. Thank you so much. That's David Orr, uh, the putting genius of, of our industry. I think so many of us teach putting owe a lot to David and what his research and, and knowledge has brought to our industry, and he's he's kind of tossed out some of our earlier concepts about putting hey it's not a straight back and straight through and it's not a pendulum so let's keep that in mind and and as david would say write that down (laughs) thanks again david we'll see you soon buddy all right that's our show for today on uh the forecast i'm alan burton your host and we've had david orr on such incredible information for you golfers out there if you want to shoot lower scores you got to get the ball in the hole and fewer strokes so let's see if we can help you do that Tune in next time, and we'll have someone else on sharing their knowledge and expertise with our listeners. And again, thanks so much for listening. We'll see you soon. You've been listening to The Mesh an online media network of shows and programs ranging from business to arts, sports to entertainment, music to community. All programs are available on the website as well as through iTunes and YouTube. Check us out online at themesh.tv. Discover other network shows and give us feedback on what you just heard.